This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. you want to skip the big box stores and shop somewhere that's 100% carbon neutral, ethically sourced, and fairly priced, Thrive Market has your back. That's right. Thrive Market's goal is to make healthy and sustainable products accessible and affordable for all. While they have plenty of different grocery items to choose from, you'll also find beauty products, home goods, and more. Something we really love about Thrive Market is how easy it is to shop. Everything is personalized to you, and you can filter through the thousands of products by more than 70 dietary and lifestyle values. For instance, I can easily fill my cart with items that are vegan, from certified B Corps, biodegradable, BIPOC owned, and ethically sourced, all by checking off a few boxes. Thrive Market also has a one-for-one membership matching program, which I love. That means when when you pay for a membership, a free one will go to a low-income family, student, teacher, veteran, or first responder. Are you ready to shop? Go to thrivemarket.com slash goodtogether to get 25% off your first order and a free gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash goodtogether. Every April, Fashion Revolution Week kicks off with the goal of creating a global fashion industry that conserves and restores the environment, plus values people over growth and profit. In today's episode, I sit down with Ursula de Castro, the founder of Fashion Revolution, to discuss why the movement started and how consumers can work together to make the fashion industry more fair and equitable for all. We also discuss her new book, Love Clothes Last, which is chock full of helpful tips for those of you looking to get into the slow fashion space by mending and conserving the fashion you already have. Let's get into it. All right. Um, So, Orsa, thank you for joining us today. Um, I have to say this is a great pleasure. I'm so excited to chat with you. I've been a big fan of Fashion Revolution for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, for me, just getting getting to share this, your story with our audience alongside um, getting to chat about your upcoming book, it's just such a pleasure. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So 
listeners, um, just to give you a brief background as to um, you know why we wanted to have Ursula on the podcast. So Ursula is um, you know has been the founder of Fashion Revolution Week for years and truly has inspired thousands of people around the world to really rethink uh, the way that they consume their fashion. <laughs> so Orsa, I wonder if you can kind of give us a brief intro of yourself and your background, sort of what inspired you to start Fashion Revolution Week, and we can kind of get into there. For sure. So basically, um, I started as a designer, actually. My, my personal story is a creative one and not one of um, environmentalism or campaigning or activism. I was a designer. I enjoyed using clothes and fabrics that were already there. So in that sense, I was upcycling. Although in 1997, the term upcycling or sustainable fashion weren't really in, in use. And so the longer I went ahead on my journey as a designer and realized quite how much waste there was, particularly I was working in the in the luxury sector and recuperating from luxury manufacturers in Italy, the more I became concerned with waste and the way that the industry was going. Those were the years when the quite a large chunk of the European and particularly the Italian industry moved in bulk to China. So I sort of witnessed all of that. I was also the curator and co-founder of Aesthetica, which was the British Fashion Council Sustainable Fashion Area at London Fashion Week. So obviously that very much cemented all of my, um, you know, my real belief in wanting not just to work sustainably myself, but the showcasing the work of others that sure. were working in the same way. So Fashion Revolution actually was Carrie's idea, Carrie Summers, um, my other founder who called me, she was one of our Aesthetica exhibitors. So we'd known each other for years and had been part of the same sort of so-called sustainable fashion community in, in the UK. And she called me after Rana Plaza and said, look, you know, we should do something. And why don't we do an event next year, Fashion Revolution? Why don't we create something, you know, of meaning for, for the garment workers who lost their lives? I have to say at that point, the entire community was desperately thinking, what can we do? What can we do? So Carrie and I got together and we imagined something bigger than just a commemorative event. We we dared to imagine the movement that Fashion Revolution is now because we are present in over 90 countries and our hashtag who made my clothes has been used millions of times. So we really have created a, a big shift with with uh, with a small, you know, first meeting in in 2013. Absolutely, and of course, it's it's been very exciting journey. Yes, I mean, I you know, it's it's amazing to me that Rana Plaza was was you know both so long ago and yet not so long ago, right? Back in 2013. And um, for listeners, if you're not familiar um, with the Rana Plaza accident, um, I invite you to go. Google it, um, get familiar with it. Um, it's been covered in various documentaries, but you know, essentially there was a, a, a large uh, commercial building uh, that collapsed in Bangladesh um, that was, you know, a garment factory, and you know, thousands of people, uh, well, over a thousand people died. I remember, and yeah. you know, it, these people truly, um, you know, were creating the clothes that we were all wearing. Right? They were creating these fast fashion pieces under extremely perilous working conditions, and I think it was 
was a yeah. big wake up call for both the fashion industry and also later consumers as consumers became, you know, more and more aware of what happened. And, you know, I actually found out about Fashion Revolution Week through your hashtag um, mm-hmm. and through your campaign around who made my clothes, because I think. I mean, before before um, your the movement that you started, or so people were not asking who made their clothes, right? No, they just assumed no. some fairy, magical fairy made exactly, it, or who knows, exactly. right? Like clothes grows on trees. That's mm-hmm. been the great success of of who made my clothes as a question because it's a relatively simple question to answer. You would think if you're buying clothes, yeah. But the fact that we knew for a fact that almost no brand or no mainstream brand could actually answer that question was indicative of the fact that, you know, this industry had created this enormous opacity around its supply chain, over its supply chain. It designed itself to be non-transparent, to be opaque, to be able to hide both social and environmental abuse. I mean, you know, I, I myself am guilty of having said many times that this is a broken system. And it certainly is broken, but it wasn't designed to be perfect. It was always somehow designed to somehow break eventually because it was designed on exploitation and excess. So, you know, in many ways, Fashion Revolution tries to bring awareness to the bigger picture and what we as citizens can do to activate in a myriad of different ways according to what works for us as people. Absolutely. And it starts truly with asking that question, right? Like thinking through where did this piece of clothing come from? I'm going to now, you know, put, put a little bit of pressure on the, you know, the company that I made, uh, that I purchased it from to tell me. Um, and like you mentioned, most of the time there, there's just so little transparency that they don't even know, right? You've got to go so far down deep into the corporation to even get information on the supply chain. Um, I wonder if you um, have seen from a corporate level any meaningful change as a result? Well, I mean, it would be difficult, I suppose, to tie it directly back to Fashion Revolution Week, but I'm curious to know um, if you've been able to get into some of these corporations and have more of these conversations with them as a result of the movement. Well, we wouldn't get into the corporations and have any kind of conversations directly with them. Because okay. that would pretty much go against the way that we operate. But I mean, yeah, the, I mean, you know, fashion revolution um, as as a as a kind of a movement, uh, you know, culminates in Fashion Revolution Week, which also is when we publish normally, actually, we've changed it this year. But up until now, we publish the Fashion Transparency Index, which has been an yes. incredibly um, important tool um, when it comes to, in particular, making brands compete with each other as to who is the most transparent. Um, you know, there's there's a kind of, uh, they've shifted that competition from selling more to doing more good. But obviously, it's still very much at marketing level for the majority of these brands. And a lot of their claims are counteracted by the reality of their actions. I mean, we know, for instance, that the high street tends to publicly disclose much more of their practices than the luxury fashion industry. But at the same time, you know, the amount of volumes that they produce somehow counterbalances um, a lot of their sustainable initiative. But transparency really is about the citizens being able to understand those nuances. You know, when you see that a certain, you know, high street brand such as H&M, you know, is 
scoring high on transparency, the transparency index will also pinpoint to, as I said, you know, what are actually the practices? How much are you paying? How much are you disclosing about that? And how far can you go down in terms of tier one, tier two and tier three, telling us about your materials, disclosing about your toxic substances. So it gives you enough information to be able to make your own choices um, and, you know, to decide which brand gives you adequate information to make those choices because we don't audit the brands we just show you yeah. what they say exactly. evidence what they say and 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 account you know call them to account on that but for sure i can say that we can in some ways attribute this rush to transparency to the fashion transparency index because you know when we started 5 6 years ago we were only really looking at 40 brands now we are looking at 250 you know mainstream the big guys and they do um you know call us and and ask you know how how could i do better could i score more um you know if i did that would that increase my my scoring you know they, they want to know um what we demand as fashion revolution what is our methodology looking for in the fashion transparency index obviously some brands don't take part in yeah that they don't respond to our questionnaire and then it's up to us to score them but we give everybody an equal opportunity to to respond of course but as i said we don't work with them okay we create yeah, this index and they know that this in and they use it they market themselves on this index you know <laughs> sure <laughs> outrageously but we don't work alongside them it, it's it's very separate as, okay. as, a, as an endeavor okay that makes sense and I love that this you know the the, the transparency um, index has inspired this sense of healthy competition amongst brands I think that's great I also love that brands are now paying more attention to this, right? Because consumers have demanded it. And I think, you know, that's one thing that we can do as a, as consumers, right? Like we can put pressure on brands to tell us more about the, you know, the provenance of where our, our garments are coming from. Um, but the, the other part, the other um, reason I was really interested to chat with you is I know that your, um, you know, your passion is, is making sure that consumers have other options, you know, when it comes to their fashion. And I believe that's most likely what led you to writing your new book. Is that correct? <laughs> well, it's a combination, actually. I mean, obviously, sure. I come from a kind of waste background, but my mm -hmm. years of fashion revolution have really opened up my mind. And for me, you know, you cannot really separate the social and the environmental issues. They're completely interdependent one with the other, you know, human rights and the rights of nature. And this is very much the core message of fashion revolution anyway. And, you know, I think particularly after COVID, we've seen that, yes, brands may communicate and may improve. But when it comes to the health of their supply chain workers, you know, they may be increasing in profit with all the online sales, but the supply chain, the garment workers in particular, are being owed billions of dollars in, in unpaid wages. So the book somehow brings together everything that we can do from scrutinizing these malpractices that situations such as COVID have made so 
obvious mm-hmm. to understanding that just as a brand is responsible for their supply chain, we are as well in the fashion supply chain the minute we buy something because we are responsible for that piece of clothing from when we own it to the end of its life. Um, and certainly not just to the end of its use. We need to be responsible until end of life. And therefore, the book tries to um you know, ensure that the penny drops, that as we are so aware of food, for instance, and interacting with our fridge and the the products that we buy to eat, that we start to bring some of that attention to our clothes. So it is very much about longevity because longevity is precisely what we can do as citizens. Everyone, every single one of us can have a different approach to how long our clothes will last and how we will keep them in that period of time and how we will get rid of them rather than dumping, you know, millions of other ways to 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 swap and share and so on and so forth. But it basically puts the reader in a creative position to, first of all, understand why we need to mend our clothes and why yes. it's so important to mend clothes because it's so important that we mend the system. And so the two go hand in hand, and there's enough for anyone that wants to try either. This episode is brought to you by Real Paper, tree-free toilet paper made from 100% bamboo. Our community has been asking us about paper-free swaps for items around the house, so this alternative to traditional toilet paper is right up our alley. I don't know about you, Laura, but I always run out of toilet paper. Me too, and I love that real paper delivers direct to your home while also using plastic-free packaging. It makes stuff so much easier. Also, while you probably haven't considered the environmental impact of your bathroom habits, unfortunately, over 27,000 trees are flushed down the toilet every day across the world. That's a lot of waste. And by using paper that comes from bamboo, you're supporting a product made out of renewable, eco-friendly resource. It's also super soft, and I couldn't tell a difference between the 100% bamboo paper and what I'm used to. Good Together listeners get 25% off your first order by using code BRIGHTLY at realpaper.com. That's R-E-E-L paper.com. Hey, Lisa, did you know that every year 10 billion disposable razors are thrown into trash around the world? I never thought about the amount of waste I was generating every time I shaved my legs. Yes, I remember we've discovered this staggering fact last year, and ever since then, me and you have been on the hunt for a sustainable plastic-free razor. The tricky part for me, though, and I know a lot of our community members feel the same way, is that safety razors can be very intimidating to use. I was literally scared when I first shaved with a safety razor. Same, but we finally found the perfect option, haven't we? Leaf Shave has created the world's first multi-blade pivoting head safety razor that makes your shaving experience almost identical to the one with a plastic razor. Leaf Shave is certified carbon neutral and they package and ship 100% plastic free as well. My favorite part about their Leaf Razor is that it accepts up to three blades so that you can decide how close of a shave you want. Once you're done with the blades, you can send them back to Leaf to recycle responsibly as scrap metal. 
This makes shaving plastic-free easier, safer, and faster than I've ever experienced. But if, unlike us, you're a total pro and not intimidated by safety razors, Leaf also has a more budget-friendly option, their Twig Razor. Check it out. Good Together listeners get 5% off by using the code BRIGHTLY at leafshave.com slash brightly. That's L-E-A-F-S-H-A-V-E dot com slash brightly. Earth Day is on April 22nd, and this year we're upping our excitement for the planet by turning the day into a month-long celebration. In fact, if you're subscribed to our newsletter or follow us on Instagram, you have already seen all the Earth Month content goodness we are sharing and will be sharing all month long. For the first time ever, we have a special content hub on our site, brightly.eco, where you can easily access all of our newest Earth Month articles, our favorite planet-friendly tips and tricks, and of course, keep in touch with our Earth Month brand partner. You know them, it's Sheets and Giggles. Why Sheets and Giggles, you ask? By now, I hope that almost all members of our community are familiar with the brand. Sheets and Giggles became our first brand partner exactly a year ago, when Laura and I started working on Brightly full-time, and when, you know, we were all adjusting to a new lockdown lifestyle. That's when we all started working on making our homes more sustainable, and that, of course, includes Sheets and Giggles bedding. With Sheets and Giggles, you can sleep better knowing that your responsibly sourced eucalyptus lysol fabric uses less water and less energy than conventionally grown cotton. And don't even get us started on polyester. Plus, their packaging is 100% plastic-free. Not an easy fit for a bedding company. Good Together listeners get 15% off by using the code BRIGHTLYEARTH at SheetsGiggles.com. That's S-H-E-E-T-S-G-I-G-G-L-E-S dot com. That's fascinating. I mean, I think we are all so used to, you know, when we're done with a garment, um, you know, regardless of where it comes from, right? Like where most of us are just so used to donating it or, you know, putting it somewhere where we no longer thinking think about it. And of course, as more and more information comes out about what actually happens to these, um, you know, garments that essentially become textile waste, um, I think people are starting to rethink this as well, um, even more um, so in, in the recent um, you know, few years, right, people are thrifting more, they're swapping more, they're kind of coming together yeah. to create more circular systems, I think from a, almost like a gorilla perspective, but um, I love your thought process around really wanting us to mend our clothes. So I'm wondering if you can tell us like a few tips that you, you know, uh, pass on to the readers in, in your book and sort of, you know, some actionable ways that people can make their clothes last longer. Well, again, there's a little bit for everyone because believe it or not, I'm absolutely terrible at mending myself. <laughs> so am so I. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm impatient yeah. and having been surrounded by amazing seamstresses all my life, I know that I can't sew like that to save my life. I'm brilliant at crochet, so I can mend <laughs> knitwear with crochet. But the book just basically rallies you around the concept of mending, of mending being available for those who can't afford to have their clothes repaired. So I would love to see mending stations in precisely those high street retailers that sell us cheap fashion. I would love to see mending stations in supermarket. I would love our communities to make mending available to, to everyone so that it is everyone that can understand longevity. You know, we and we need to use language correctly. Um, for example, we talk about circularity, but really circularity truly means fiber to fiber. And it's very difficult for citizens to 
you know, you, you can be closer to a circular system. You could be operating with a circular mindset, but ultimately you're responsible for the longevity of your clothes. And that goes back to another word, donating. I mean, donating is to gift someone. So you wouldn't give a charity shop something that's stained or broken or that you wouldn't wear yourself. Yeah. If you are donating to a charity, it is because you want them to be able to make a profit out of that clothes that they will be eventually selling. So you need to donate it in a really good state and make it the gift that it truly should be. Everything else, that's what I'm saying, it's your responsibility to ensure that, you know, you've got a broken T-shirt, well, you can use it for making kitchen rags. Um, you, you know, and again, there are simple ways that you can do from, you know, using denim to, you know, polish things. And these are just, you know, very old fashioned, you know, making your rags last mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than your loved clothes. But it is a mindset, it is a way of thinking, and there are millions of different solutions. You know, it, it's difficult to categorize them because, you know, the book uh, hopefully is for just so many different people. And what's right for me might not be right for you, but it's the concept that the book makes strong, that all of us can think differently in relation to the longevity of the clothes that we own and devise new systems that will work in our daily lives. You know, this is not about going on a diet. You can't suddenly decide you're going to do it all. Mm -hmm. You can do what you can do and that do it excellently. Exactly. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the things that we are constantly talking about on this podcast, which is what are small steps that people can do, you know, to create change. They don't necessarily have to jump into the deep end at the beginning, but the first step is asking the question and being curious. Yeah. Um, exactly. And, you know, of course, one, um, like you just mentioned, one solution is not necessarily going to be for everyone, but the more we can just, you know, have the conversation and think about it, the better. And I love your, your point about, you know, perhaps the establishment of mending centers or making these, um, you know, services more accessible to people. I've always been amazed at how difficult it is to find a good quality tailor anymore yeah, because, absolutely. you know, that, that went out of fashion for a long but time. That's our, but that's our Western point of view because you're yep. in India. On the other hand, you have thriving communities of local tailors. So how can we learn from those communities where it is still thriving? You know, it's also a question of connecting and not just looking at how we do it because actually with mending and with making and with bespoke, we've got a global um, heritage of very different styles and very different, you know, initiatives and very different sort of community projects. So again, we can learn from each other. But the point is precisely that. It's not one solution like renting or mending yep. or buying organic that can be upscaled to its millionth potency. It's precisely the replication of lots of tiny different solutions that matters because you know you're not going to wake up one morning and just say right there you go I'm only buying organic clothes that's never going to work yeah you're never going to say okay well you know if you do say okay I'm going to boycott clothes well there you go I mean that's not necessarily the way to go either it's excessive any excess is ridiculous yeah so it's about looking at maybe several things that you can do you know maybe be a little bit more mindful over that hem that dropped and find someone that can maybe it is about finding that time to look for that perfect person i mean in the uk we're beginning to see systems where people can you know uh, locate and and uh, you know find their local seamstresses there's a brilliant um uh, organization called the seam london and a new one that i've just seen born called sojo so we're beginning to see the kind of you know 
the uberification of, mm. of mending. And that's incredibly important. But as I said, a healthy wardrobe will have a bit of organic, a bit of mending, a bit of sustainable, a bit of sustainable designers, you know, and, and it's a bit of cocktail of everything. Absolutely. And the, the, the last one I kind of wanted to make around the topic of mending is um, the accessibility and affordability of, um, you know, getting, you know, reusing clothes and getting your hands dirty with, you know, with understanding how to mend, right? I think another conversation we have constantly is the misconception that uh, being sustainable or being eco-friendly is, you know, for people that have um, a lot of, you know, a lot of money. <laughs> um, and, yeah. you know, there are, of course, ways that you can go about it by choosing to, you know, uh, you know, bin your entire wardrobe and only purchase, um, you know, the most ethical designers, which of course, again, excess is not good. Most people don't do that, but there is a misconception, I believe. Um, so Brightly has constantly been trying to, you know, put out more content that talks about, you know, reusing what you have, et cetera. So, um, I wonder if, um, you know, the, the, the topic of affordability is, uh, is one that uh, that's close to you as well. Absolutely. I mean, definitely, definitely. And again, I put the onus on on big brands on that. I mean, the reason why we can't buy these young emerging designers, it's because it's impossible for them to reach our high streets. And, yes. you know, therefore, you know, I think something like 40 brands have a monopoly of, um, sorry, an oligopoly of, you know, 95% of the market or something ridiculous like that. So we need to increase visibility of, again, hundreds of thousands of smaller, different artisanal, uh, you know, uh, enterprises, creative designers, upcyclists, and so on and so forth. Uh, if there were many of them, plenty, plenty more, I think prices would go down and there would be a healthier system to value their work and therefore maybe saving up in order to buy them and so on and so forth. But it's mending really that needs to be mega affordable. And if you are H&M or Zara and you are making cheap clothes, it's them that aren't paying the full cost. It's that H&M, you know, Boohoo, Pretty Little Things, you know, the, the, the fast fashion brands that aren't paying the cost, neither to people nor to planet. It's also the must, must uh, luxury that's not paying. They're not necessarily paying adequately their supply chain workers either. Yeah. So, you know, we we are being taken for a ride both when it comes to cheap fashion and when it comes to expensive fashion. So we need to be mindful of, of the concept of affordability also on the other side. But, yeah. you know, it is the whole system of the way that we've been taught to buy that needs to change. And Gen Z is already, you know, buying, mending, selling secondhand via Depop. You know, they're, they're already and they're not doing it to save the planet. They do it because it's cool. Yes. So inevitably, we are also overloaded of, of same, same, same. You know, brands say that they're providing us choice. But, you know, I always say endless runs of the same thing isn't choice. It's an imposition. Absolutely. No, I, I love I love that piece and thinking about, you know, how to make sustainability about creativity and about, um, you know, the expression of one's uniqueness is, is so fascinating. Um, so to kind of end our conversation, Orso, we usually like to ask our guests sort of what is exciting them the most about the conscious consumerism movement right now. And I'm sure, I mean, being the leader of a movement yourself, you, you kind of have a unique insight here. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would like these movements all to be a little bit more diverse. I mean, you know, I am part of an elite uh, activism to a certain extent where a lot of the people I see look like me. Um, mm -hmm. And so obviously we are one step ahead, I guess, with Fashion Revolution because our country coordinators in, as I said, over 90 countries are fundamental to the way that we develop our activism so that it's not necessarily centered around what 
is the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the main organizing team, but that we work in unison with all of the voices and all of the people that are part of our intrinsic network. And I think that this is important. You know, we need to shift again to a form of activism that is much less top up and much yes. more bottom down, you know, and this, I, I, I'm proud that Fashion Revolution was never particularly the celebrity movement or, um, you know, we, we gained our strength because we had a lot of followers. And we, um, you know, when we showcase the designers in our Fashion Open Studio initiative, we showcase those designers that are really working regeneratively, um, creatively, and using their creativity of service. We're not top down. Mm -hmm. And that, I feel, has been an essential part of our activism. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I, I agree. I think, you know, the, the more diverse um, voices that we can uplift to really help continue to um, galvanize the movement, the better. I mean, we, we all need to understand the variety of backgrounds that people are coming from when they express um, an interest and, and need for sustainable fashion. So that, that makes total sense. Um, and yes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you're interested in learning more about Fashion Revolution, check out their worldwide efforts at fashionrevolution.org. Ursula's book, Loved Clothes Last, is now available wherever you prefer to get your books, digitally and physically, but don't forget to check out bookshop.org in addition to Amazon. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.